Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing, and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us tonight on Friends and Fiction, where we celebrate books, authors, and independent bookstores. Tonight, we welcome Nancy Yoon Kim, whose novel, The Last Story of Mina Lee, was an instant New York Times bestseller and a Reese Witherspoon pick. Yes, it was. I'm your host, Mary Alice Monroe. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. I have to tell you, everyone, I was so captivated with tonight's really powerful, insightful novel. It's a story of a mother and daughter separated by language and cultural divides. And yet the love was there. They're so bound by love. So we have a lot of questions for them. But before we start our discussion, we want to think about another mama, our partner, Mama Geraldine. <laughs> you know, I always have Mama G's on hand when my grandchildren come to visit. And I can always tell when they've been there because the little bags are sprinkled off. <laughs> and they're always empty. Now, remember, you can use the code FAB5, all caps, to get 20% off at MamaGeraldine's.com. Snack on, y'all. Love that. And okay, friends and fiction tribe. It is time again to mobilize the troops for our other partner, Page One Books. They have been nominated for Best Book Subscription Box by USA Today and 10 Best. We have moved them up because that's the power of our tribe. They are up, but they are not page three. They are page one. (laughs) And it's a small female-owned business. They are number one to us. So let's get our votes in and come together to get them to number one by voting every day, which I have done, until March 29th. So thank you, Page One, for partnering with us. And remember, you can get 10% off with the code FAB5. And that code, FAB5, works for both Mama G's and Page One. So very easy to remember, FAB5. And now to our guest. Nancy Juyun Kim is the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Story of Mina Lee. Described as part literary crime novel, it is also part romance and part friendship. The Last Story of Mina Lee opens with a somewhat of a nightmare scenario when a young woman is trying to call her mother and she doesn't answer the phone. And you know that uh oh feeling you always get when that happens. So read on. This is Nancy's triumphant debut novel, and I think all of us agreed it's so wonderful and so sophisticated, it's hard to believe it's a debut. But she is a prolific writer. Her writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Guernica, NPR, PRI Selected Shorts, 
Salon, which has an incredible essay about her mother in there, Asian, Amer Asian American Writers Workshops, The Margins, and Elsewhere. Nancy was born in Los Angeles, where the novel takes place, but now she lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband and a new baby girl. So let's bring on Nancy. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Thanks so for delighted. being here. Nancy, you write beautiful essays. And recently, the five of us began a partnership with Parade Magazine for weekly essays. And this past week, Kristen Harmel wrote such a beautiful and moving and timely piece titled A Surprising Lesson from the Past About Our Shared Humanity. And in it, she writes about historical examples during World War II of how people opened one's heart to others, to strangers, reaching out to help a fellow man. And right now, we are a world that is just beginning to feel, don't you think, a little hope now? Mm -hmm. As we can begin, you know, getting out of the pandemic and we can begin to connect <sighs> with families and friends. I mean, we're all dying to see our family. And we're all, a lot of us are getting our vaccinations now. So hope springs eternal. So the question I'm going to ask, based on Kristen's beautiful essay, is, mm. Nancy, you can answer fast. And these are quick Quick, brief answers. Oh. Can you recall a time in your lives when you opened your heart or door to help someone? Nancy, let's start with you. Oh, wow. That's such a great question. And I'm looking forward to reading that essay, Kristen. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. I, I feel like just thinking about examples of opening a door to someone... You know, when, when I was growing up, I I worked in, just like in a novel, um, my mother worked in swamp meets in, um, um, outside of Los Angeles, and there was this great sense of communality that we had mm -hmm. um, working in that environment, sort of a working class immigrant community environment. And I can't really think of specific instances of reaching out, but we had this wonderful opportunity to share. We, you know, each of the different families had different stores within the swamp meet environment. And we were always sort of sharing food and communing over mm -hmm. food. And I just remember that that was such a mutual um, sort of respect and appreciation that we had for each other that um, was a way of helping each other out, but was so much a part of our everyday lives that I wouldn't necessarily say that they it stood out or certain instances, instances stood out. Um, yeah, so that's through food and just sort of the ways that you can sort of learn about each other and what's important to each other through food. Right. That's beautiful. That. Oh, so true. Mary Kay, do you have an answer? Yeah. My, actually, my daughter um, got me onto this kick. Um, these, uh, they're, they're not charities. They're called um, uh, commu uh, community things, but they're all over the country, and they're free fridges. And you can put food oh. in. You wow. can put food in. Anybody can put food in, and anybody can take food out. So my daughter, Katie has is is a diehard doing that and we have pitched in to help with that so you can put in um staple goods you can put in prepared foods and you label it so they know it's not some you know if they're you're not giving them rotting food from your fridge this is food right. you've prepared and bag lunches That's and awesome. um you know they do period packs women's hygiene products with if you That's great. you know if you are living close to the bone 
um, you don't have money to buy hy- women's hygiene products. So this mm. is something that um, uh, it's kind of a project the whole family's taken on. So, I love it. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it, it, this week as a group, um, all of us, it was just a small little thing we did, but we learned, Friends in Fiction, we learned about a bookseller who um, who's paying her luck forward. And she, you know, she's had a struggle during the pandemic, but she's been helping give free books to kids who need them. Mm. And so we made a small donation to her to help her to buy more books for kids who need them. Um, And she wrote back and said that she was going to purchase those books at a friends of the library sale. So that donation to her will help support a library too. So I love that idea of paying. Yeah, I love it. So that paying it forward Mm -hmm can pay someone forward. I, I, mm-hmm. I love that idea of just a, a good deed continuing to reverberate mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, for me, I mean, this is something that I sort of still can't get over, but um, in the town where I used to live, there was a man at a church and he was from a village in Africa called Taloha. And um, it was a very poor village. They did not have water. And someone in our church decided we were going to do it. Like we were going to get water to Taloha, which is, this massive oh, wow. undertaking, and I won't even go into the um, all of the details, but it was one of those things that seemed absolutely impossible and insurmountable, and over the course of a couple of years actually happened. And it was one of the coolest things that I've ever been involved with, just to see all of the people that came together um, here and then, you know, all the way across the world to be able to, you know, really create this economically stable place for these amazing people to live. So it was really cool. Wow. It is. And I think that's what's so... Oh, Patty, you go ahead first. <laughs> jumping in, jumping in. I, you know, when I was growing up, Nancy, you you made me think about it. When I was growing up, my dad was a pastor and we used to always have people come live with us oh. who were in trouble. Oh, and wow. All the time. Oh, wow. They were actually wow. called live-ins. And as a kid, you're thinking, seriously? Like there's this stranger in the attic, but it was, that's how I grew up. There was always somebody that my parents were helping that was, that were living in our house. And it's this outreach that then I've watched them grow up and do the same thing for other people. Oh, I love that. Like you said, it keeps going. They literally opened the door. Yeah, exactly. Literally. And I love this concept. And I think it's really going to be um, for everyone who reads the essay, you'll see the BESA is that concept that Kristen wrote about. And I think the key for that was strangers too, which Patty, yours really touched on and Mary Kay. Mm From, you know, during the last pandemic, my sisters all lived with me during um, leaving big cities, but that wasn't really strangers. I have to say though, when years ago, and this was in the late 80s, it was when the, if you remember, when President Carter had a lot of the refugees coming in from Southeast Asia, from Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and Amman. These were people who were running for their lives. And they came to Milwaukee, where I was teaching the survival English. And it was more social work than teaching, or equal amounts, I should say. But the the community really came together to pull together food and places where they could live. And I think it was one of the most beautiful experiences I ever mm-hmm. had was to see how a community yeah. came together because everyone knew that these people were left behind after the after the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. they were running for their lives. Mm-hmm. It was powerful and it made me think of that World War II experience in Kristen's wow. essay. Wow. wow. Well, now, Nancy... Let's talk about your wonderful book. 
Oh. Last story of Nina Lee. All right, now it's your chance to give everyone of our readers a brief synopsis of the story. Oh, thank you so much. Um, the last story of Mina Lee, it takes place in Los Angeles's Koreatown. Um, it's about a um, American-born daughter of a Korean immigrant named Mina. The story begins with a death. It begins with Margot, um, as you, you mentioned in the intro, um, finding her mother's body in their Koreatown apartment, which is where she grew, grew up. And it sort of alternates between the present and the past. It's both an investigation of a death, but also an investigation of a life. And in the process of trying to figure out, Margot's the main character, trying to figure out what happened to her mother on the night of her death. She's also learning more about who her mother was when she was alive, which is very important, and also who she is as well. And so it's kind of mix of, it's, you know, I, I wrote it as literary, but it's a mix, you know, it takes elements of genre of mystery in it and some say historical fiction, a little bit of that too in it. So, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I yeah. see that. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. It's, um, we're going to have fun now diving into our questions. We all have lots. <laughs> yeah. um, I have to say, I loved this book and I felt this would be a great book for a book club discussion. Yeah. Because there's, it's, first of all, it's very timely today. Mm -hmm. But also they're filled with so many personal issues, mother-daughter issues that are yeah. always good for book club. So Christy, yeah. why don't you start us off? Well, I also loved this story and it's such a coming of age for Margot. And we really get to see how, you know, as a child, she viewed her mother as a failure with yeah. her inability to speak English and their poverty and her endless working and demands on Margot to help her. And she was, she was embarrassed of her mother. Um, mm -hmm. And then her death triggers that change to adulthood. And as she is, you know, sort of making that change and becoming more of a woman, she learns mm -hmm. so much compassion for her mother. Yeah. And by the end, really even views her as heroic. So can you talk about your use of the dual storylines alternating between Mina and Margot between the past and present and how the reader almost hears a dialogue that they never got to have? That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, I definitely, I intended the sort of the structure of the novel to, well, both Margot and Mina's points of views. One is in the 1980s, Mina's, and Margot's is in the current, which is 2014 of the novel. Um, I intended them for them both to sort of begin at major turning points in their lives. For, for Margot, it is discovering her mother's body. And for Mina, it is coming to America after she has experienced sort of horrific tragedies in her past. And she is sort of psychologically pushed to, to escape um, South yeah. Korea. And so I, in many ways, saw this as a kind of what I call the impossible conversation between the two, the past and the present talking, speaking with each other mm -hmm. and mother and daughter speaking with each other in a way that couldn't happen in real life. Yeah. And that's obviously one of the tragedies of the book. You know, you wish Mina was alive yes. to see Margot realize yeah. all these things. But I also think it's actually more realistic in a way for, yeah. in my point of view, that sometimes that, you know, when a person passes, that's when you get to know them on a different level because there's this kind yes. of surrender to the facts and a surrender to what they leave behind, you know, mm -hmm. and there are no more walls that that person can put up, you know, so they're kind of ultimately laid bare in a really interesting yeah. way. And so I love that you brought up this um, idea of the, the past and the present and dialogue with each other, because I definitely, as a book that in a lot of ways is exploring and meditating on issues of language, the silences in our families, what we can talk about, what we don't make space to talk about, 
the structure of the novel is really a kind of conversation that I think, and this is why I think fiction is so powerful, is that it allows for a conversation that could not happen in real life for these characters. And so we have the ability to kind of do these things in, with fiction that I think, um, you know, sort of unlocks, the, you know, a conversation that, um, I, in my opinion, you know, like I've had readers ask me, they're like, you know, I, or say things like, you know, Mina, I, you know, I love Mina as a character, but I don't understand why Mina never said this to her daughter, you know? Yeah. But, you know, there are so many uh, reasons why we keep things to ourselves, whether it's to protect other people, to be less vulnerable. Yeah. And so in many ways, this conversation is a conversation that leads toward forgiveness, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness of Margot's forgiveness of her mother, forgiveness of herself, mm-hmm. and maybe even the forgiveness that we can have for other people, you know, ourselves and our lives that we might um, you know, have yeah. misunderstandings about or have never been able to sort of attain some sort of closure with. Yeah, that's so true. And then, you know, that's something that we've talked about on the show before is that sometimes the most interesting parts of our characters are the things that they don't say. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much of that in the story. And as a reader, that's one of my favorite parts. So I think that really drew me into the story about, you know, these secrets that both of these women are keeping from each other. I also, it also struck me too how cruel, and we've all had the older yeah. the older ones of us have older daughters. How cruel young daughters can be, you know, yeah. that they're embarrassed <laughs> and biting. It's just so childlike, but they, that's what they're responding to. And I thought you brought that up, and the guilt she felt afterwards. And it makes me think about how let's have those conversations now, yes. not only with my mother, good points, but with my daughter. Like yes. it goes, it goes. I'm about to see her. I'm going to ask her, what do you wish you could say to me? Right? Yeah. What do you oh, wish I would say to you? Yeah, Sina, how do you look what you've done. That <laughs> is so what, powerful. What do you yeah. wish you would say, could say? Say it now. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that. So also in the book, you really redefine the American dream. You reveal the darker side of the working class, especially for immigrants, in ways that are really timely and what we're talking about now. So in the novel, the measure of success is is different than, mm-hmm. than even newcomers or what we define now. So what is the measure of success, especially between the two of them? You know, that's such a that's a great point. Um, I when I was writing this book, I the words American nightmare occur to me more often because as you know, this book begins with a kind of nightmare scenario, a nightmare that many of us have, which is what happens when this person I love. Yeah. It's like one of the greatest terrors in life. Right. And in many, and, and so this book is in a lot of ways exploring, um, how the American dream isn't actually the way we think of American dream isn't a reality for a lot of people in this country, unfortunately, mm-hmm. like without right. the systems and the structures in place to support certain people. In Mina's case, she is marginalized by her immigration status, by the fact that she's working class, that she doesn't speak English, that she's a woman of color, that she's an immigrant. There are so many layers to the fact that she will, even if she had lived past this book, she would always be living probably week to week, month to month. In her daughter's eyes, she would never be considered a successful person. Um, But I think what happens in this book is Margot evolves to see how her mother was in actuality a person who was very 
successful, but on different terms. She loved, she was courageous. She put herself out there. She, she had friendships that were meaningful, that stood the test of time. She found beauty in everyday life. She found joy. She found love. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of this book is about looking at the ways that we can define success by the connections that we have with other people and the intimacies that we achieve in life. Because for me, yeah. Nina is a, although her story is tragic, her life is so full and rich and experienced in such an interesting way that I would consider her to be a hero and someone who achieves so much with, with what she has. And so hopefully I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of create a conversation around, you know, how we define success and whether or not we can make it more inclusive and broader and bigger to include more people. Because we can talk about that with our work, right? How do we define success? What does it mean? Is it, is it this? Is it what your family thinks is success? Is it what your daughter thinks is success? So I love that it's woven in between the lines. And you, and you showed so clearly, I mean, they, that woman, no one worked harder than this woman. She never took a day off. She had her child work with her and yet she was never going to be, she never, she knew she would never have a more financial success. Right. And I think that's a reality that is not part of the American dream of work hard and you're going to get rich. It's work hard and you're going to survive. Mm -hmm. I thought you portrayed that well. And, and, you know, speaking of that, I, you know, this novel is many things, but among them is a tribute to single working women doing their very best against the odds. So Mina, the mother, earns a living at first as an undocumented immigrant by stocking shelves in a Korean grocery store, right? So your portrayal of what it's like to be a woman, especially one without a real safety net, working and barely scraping by, barely holding it together, is so powerful. And you had this great quote that I wanted to read for people out there um, who are watching. And the whole world told women every day, if you are alone, you are no one. A woman alone is no one at all. Mm -hmm. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about that quote in particular and that attitude in general, especially as it plays out in your characters' lives? Thank you so much for this question. I mean, I think this is so important for us to talk about, you know, just to acknowledge that this is a working class single woman. It's the story of a heroine that is a working class and a single woman, you know, or at least um, as how Margot knows her in the book. Um, That quote came from, I think, myself having grown up in a family where I had a single mother and sort of watching the ways in which um, I never saw her experience sort of represented in ways that were yeah. complicated or interesting in the world, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I feel like there are so many parents, single mothers, single parents, working yes. class who struggle on so many levels, just not having the family structure, but also not having the social structure that supports them. Yeah. And so for me, it was important to show how a woman like Mina not only endures, but she creates change in her life. You know, she not only lives, but she leads an interesting life. And so an interesting and complicated life emotionally and sort of psychologically. And so, yeah, it was important for me to see women like my own mother who, um, you know, and I, this book is not autobiographical, but some of the dynamics between the mother and daughter are very true and real to my own life. And because society often doesn't portray women Uh, single women, single working women, single mothers um, as 
heroes or people that we can even like admire or aspire to, you know, yes. to sort of have some, some of the traits or the values of, um, it was really important for me to just sort of highlight that and to sort of celebrate, you know, the fact that, you know, women are deserving of our own stories and we're capable of um, being the main characters yeah, of our own yeah. stories. Yes. Sometimes men come into play and that's great. And sometimes they don't. And that's also, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's also great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like it's that, that's not what the story revolves around. And I yeah. just feel like, because we need all kinds of stories. I mean, for me, it's about creating a yeah. full spectrum of stories in this world. You know, um, we have all sorts of readers in the world. We have readers yeah. who are looking for all sorts of things, whether it's escape or education or what, you know, but we need the full spectrum to sort of represent our humanity. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for picking that quote. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful one. And, and, you know, it's also just this idea. I, I love the idea that, um, we, we don't, all of us, we don't get credit for these things, you know, that we're doing, that we're working day in and day out and pouring our hearts into. Mm -hmm. And I just thought you, you brought that to the forefront so beautifully, but I love mm -hmm. that there was an inspiration of your own, um, your own family dynamic in there a little bit too. I think that makes it all the more meaningful. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that right now, a lot of people, a lot of women are writing articles about how during the pandemic, even though they're all home, they're, they're still doing all the housework. They're still, they're the teachers with the children, the women, the and single mothers in particular, but even married women are enduring a lot in this last pandemic, the, the power that they have in the family and how everyone depends on them. There is yeah. so much unacknowledged and unpaid or underpaid labor that I think women oh, take yeah. on because it's expected sure. of us because of our strength, you know, um, Mina's strength or Margot's yes. strength. Yes. But I mean, it's important to acknowledge that it is labor ultimately in the end. And this is why people are burning out. And this is why, yeah. you know, this is why Margot was in many ways resentful of her mother because of how hard her mother did work. So she was only really able to see her mother as a laborer but her yes. mother didn't really have a choice you know right yeah I mean I think we see that there really isn't much many options for Mina in this world and yeah. so um for Margot to see her mother as someone other than just like this the stereotype of maybe a hard-working immigrant in her mind a failure yeah. but as a woman yeah. who had you know love interests as a woman who had a sense of adventure and courage you know yeah. who lived courageously I think is really important yeah yeah you know, the sense of place is so powerful in this novel. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles is Koreatown with its landscape and complicated history. And for Mina, who arrived in L.A. not speaking the language, mm -hmm. um, without a job, and only one personal connection, the Koreatown community was just her key to everything, her survival. And there was poverty, but there were churches and groceries and places of support like the swap meet and the swap meet store owners, you know, their community that they formed and the food, everybody, uh, I'm looking at the comments. Everybody is talking about the food. Everybody's talking about the food. Margot, her town as an adult was, I think part of her awakening um, to an appreciation for her culture and you know, I think it's interesting. I get the uh, New York Times um, food things every week. And I think almost every week there there's at least one Korean recipe. And I think it's fascinating. Um, and all kinds of multicultural 
um, recipes and more discussion about a whole world of food. Yeah. And this is a long way of getting to this question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. You're talking about food. I'm getting hungry. Like <laughs> I'm getting hungrier and hungrier as you. What, what do you hope readers take away uh, from reading about this community that they might not have been previously aware of? I mean, I love the, the scenes in the church. <laughs> yeah, in her church. I love that. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I think Koreatown and many ethnic enclaves around across this country are often portrayed as, or typically portrayed as, um, stereotypically portrayed as places where crime happens, you know, um, places where seedy activity is going on. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to portray a Koreatown that is the Koreatown that I, that I know, and I went to elementary school and I grew up within which is a place that provides some of those safety nets that don't exist within the larger society for people who are new to this country. And food is not just food is yes, it's pleasurable, but it's such a way of, it's such an integral way of surviving and also sort of communicating history and strength. And there's so many lessons to be learned within the food that's brought here um, yeah. from other countries. And I feel like for in this novel, for Margot, food is it. You know, she, she, she's. You know, we sort of like learn about how, um, in you know, earlier in her life, she wanted to eat American food, and she thought of Korean food as very boring. And yeah. so, as the novel progresses, and she is sort of spending more time in Koreatown and sort of revisiting meals that she had with her mother, she is sort of realizing that her mother, in a lot of ways, made enormous sacrifices to feed her, yeah. and was sort of. Yeah teaching her lessons in the foods that she made, created and sort of supported her with uh, ways to survive and sort of, you know, without a lot of money and to sort of communicate, you know, where she comes from her history through food. Mm -hmm. And so food and Koreatown and ethnic enclaves are extraordinarily um, important and vital places that provide some of sometimes the only services where a person who has just arrived from this country can go to the post office, can go to the bank, can, you know, go grocery mm -hmm. shopping. And so these, these spaces are just, you know, this is, this is a way of kind of countering a lot of, I think the very harmful myths about places like Koreatown or Chinatown, which, you know, I think historically have sort of been, especially when you think about it in the genre of like mystery as sort of as oh, yeah. places where crime happens oh. or like drug, hate, you know, oh, I mean, wow. China yeah. the movie. I thought of that. exactly. And so counters that idea <laughs> by showing, yeah, the more everyday necessities that are fulfilled by mm. these places. And obviously, and you know, we're, you know, in large cities, wow. we, are dealing with issues of gentrification and like people being, you know, unable to afford within to live within these areas anymore. And so that mm -hmm. the novel kind of touches oh, upon yeah. that as well, but yeah. just to show how vital and important these places are, you know, in terms of, you know, that, you know, we can think more about how can we protect these spaces for people mm -hmm. and what goes on in them. Um, yeah. But thank you so I, much for that question. I, I love it. Yeah. I kind of love that we get a, peek into a, a community or a world we don't know. I think that's one of the best things about novels. You know, we get to see Koreatown as opposed to just knowing about it. But can I go back to the family secrets? You mentioned it earlier, Ooh. and I, I have a couple more questions. Um, you wrote, sometimes agreeing to the lie is what makes a family family, Margot. And I think it foreshadowed a lot, and Ooh. it highlights 
that theme of family and secrets. So I really resonated it. My father, I'm first generation from my father. He's an immigrant from Germany. And at the time he came over, it was hard to be a German in America. I, I know that he doesn't talk much, but I've heard, you know, that he had experiences where he was beaten up and oh. teased and made fun. And so um, it made me think of a lot of that sense of other that this nation's still going through. And he never talked to us ever about his experiences in Germany or in America when he was young. It was, which of course makes us hungry to know what really happened. But it reminded me of Mina and it really touched me. She kept secrets from her daughter that were pretty big secrets, like the father, who her father mm -hmm. was even. And I thought to myself, wow, um, that is, that's more than just being silent. And I had a question. Go ahead. Here's my question. Do you think, because Mina lived an incredibly tragic life. I mean, this woman went through trauma from four years old on. And we know trauma affects yeah. how we respond to things the rest of our lives. So do you think this um, inability for Mina to share, even with her friends, these secrets, was cultural? Because I don't know the Korean culture about silence and secrets in a family. Or do you think it could have been the traumatic experience she had where she chose not to relive those experiences by bringing it up? Right. That's a great question. I, when I was creating these characters, to me, it was more about trauma, which I think is um, not specific to any culture, you know, like as mm -hmm. you're bringing Mary, your father's experiences and being yeah. unable to sort of speak about them. I think they have to do with more to do with trauma. And I don't feel like we, in American culture, we live in a society that makes it feel completely safe to share vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And so ah, because life is so work oriented mm -hmm. and I sort of always envisioned Mina as this person who worked so hard, she focused on work and to revisit things that would make her daily life, that would make her question her daily life, that would make her reconsider things would be too painful uh, personally and so i i i always attributed it a little bit more to trauma a desire to protect her daughter and a desire to protect herself from yeah. the past and also the sort of interesting relationship that trauma has to everyday life and the fact that she had to spend so much of her life just focusing on survival yeah. paying the bills eating you know yeah. getting through the next day, getting through the next day that I don't feel like she had many opportunities to really sit down with the sort of weight of everything that she had been through yeah. and perhaps didn't want to sort of burden her daughter with the weight of those things. Yeah. You know, maybe by immigrating to this country, she felt that she could escape a lot of it, but obviously we see that she doesn't. She lives with Mitch, a lot of trauma from the war. Um, she mm -hmm. herself is an orphan of the war and you know, has lots of flashbacks in terms of the things that she experienced, the violence that she experienced. And so um, in many ways, there's a lot of repression that is going on that I feel is um, pretty, can be universal as opposed to culturally specific. Yeah, I agree, but it does beg the question, um, do you think after having done this research, and it is culturally universal, I agree, that secrets are something that are not healthy for a family that we should knock down those barriers a little bit to converse what do you have an opinion on that 
That's a great question. I have so many secrets and silences in my own family mm. and they continue to, you know, regardless of having written this book and having pursued and trying to pursue answers. Do I feel like they should be guarded? I, I think that people have a right to guard the secrets that they need to keep in order to preserve their own, you know, sense of self or to protect themselves. So um, like the secrets within my own family, I don't have any judgment upon like my mother not talking enough about certain things. Cause I understand that there's a lot of pain associated with it. But um, I think that if we spoke a little bit more with each other, we'd realize we have more in common than yes, we so don't. True. And so there is a certain what is bad about keeping certain things silent is that there are sort of, you create these silos around yourself. Margot has herself in a silo and Mina has herself in a silo. And if they had spoken a little bit more, I think they would have realized that they have a lot more in common, that there are many things mm -hmm. to, Margot has a lot to admire about her mother. Mm -hmm. And if only they had spoken a little bit more in life. Yeah. So I feel like Mina could have preserved certain questions while also, I mean, certain yeah. secrets while also, yeah. yeah. I kind of felt that. I have to admit, I kind of felt that too. And I think I probably saw that at my daddy too. He could have told me a few more stories before he passed away. But you see what I mean, everybody, why this is such a good book for book clubs. There's a yeah, lot, there's just a lot to talk discussion. about. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the last story of Mina Lee highlights the importance of community, as we talked about. And every week here on Friends in Fiction, we highlight an independent bookstore to encourage our listeners, our followers, to support independent bookstores who are bedrock in our communities. And Friends in Fiction is our literary community. Y'all out there, we really love it. <laughs> so, Nancy... Uh, could you tell us, how did you choose the bookstore this week, Pegasus Books? Oh, Pegasus Books is in Berkeley and Oakland. It's one of those bookstores that I just love. You can spend so much time just sort of quietly browsing. People there are so helpful, super friendly. It's just a gem. I, you know, bookstores are places where we can... They're one of those, they're one of the few places in society where we can just kind of wander in and there oh, are... Nice very few expectations placed upon you. You're just kind of there. You can be collecting ideas. You can be, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I find that to be, and without any specific agenda from the bookstore itself, other than sh sharing stories and selling books. And I think that that's just wonderful. And Pegasus Books is a great example of that. Mm, that awesome. is so well said. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, it sounds like Pegasus is a really amazing place and I hope that we all get to go there really soon. This week they are offering 10% off of featured titles, um, including the last story of Mina Lee, as well as new and recent releases by the five of us. So check them out. You don't even need a code. Thanks. No awesome. code. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> well, Nancy, we had a chance to ask you some questions, and now it's to our viewers' turn. So, it Mary is. Kay, why don't you start this off? Well, yeah, we've got so many questions coming across. Georgia Perkins wants to know, do you ever talk to your characters while you're writing a book? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I've never gotten that question before. No, I mean, like me, Nancy. No, I actually don't. I don't think I do. Yeah. I completely you, didn't ever ask, you didn't ever ask Mina, why did you do that? No. I don't have conversations with characters in my book. Yeah. That's, that's a great question, though. That's funny. Yeah. Do I, I do either of you? Really no. Okay. No. Do okay. you guys? Do y'all? I dream them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
I have them in my head. Like, yeah, I I have a little bit of a, yeah. I have a conversation with people who I wish I would have said something in a better way. Yeah. In my head all the time. Me too. That's yeah. Oh, that would have been the perfect retort. (laughs) There's a whole world in that in my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually (laughs) a day later. Yeah. That takes up so many hours of our lives, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's like ridiculous, but oh my gosh, if we could rewrite chapter two of our own life, right? (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) This is from one of our favorite um, members, Angela May. She said, I finished reading the last story of Mina Lee. I am a first generation Korean American, and so much of your story resonated with me. The Ferris wheel shows up in three significant scenes in the book, twice for the mother Mina and once for the daughter. Well, I have my own ideas in its meaning in the lives of the characters. Did you have symbolism from your perspective of the Ferris wheel? Yes, I mean, definitely the thank you so much for that question. Um, Yeah, I definitely saw it as I was working with sort of ideas of um, cycles within the book. Mm -hmm. There are seasonal cycles, but I'm also was thinking about just the cycle of life. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the Ferris wheel to me is also just personally a very important like symbol from being from Los Angeles as a place of escape as a place where you can sort of silently sort of be with yourself with by yourself or with a loved yep. one. And it allows you to get this very interesting, different point of view on life. And a lot of the mm. book itself is about points of view. Oh, and yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that's a high vantage point. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so the sort of cyclical nature of, I think the book and the way that it is about, you know, things coming back around again and the way the past and the future sort of, inform each other is definitely embodied mm-hmm. in the Ferris wheel. So thank you for pointing, you know, thank you for asking that question because I love that symbol and actually um, almost nobody points it out, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you, Angela. Well, so Nancy, we have a few questions from our live feed, but first I just wanted to point something out. You mentioned ahead of time that you have an infant who we've seen beautiful um, pictures uh, of on Instagram. And I was thinking as you were talking, when I had a, you said four, four months old, right? Four, when I had a four month old, I could barely string together three words, and you sound oh, yeah. like more intelligent and well spoken <laughs> oh, no. than I do She's if okay. I had like twelve hours of sleep. I'm just, oh my god! I, I can only you. You just must be formidable on a full night of sleep. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, it is. I mean, I will say yes. Yeah, stringing. I mean, the sentences I have had to record some things for book stuff and like yeah. I will leave out entire clauses in a sentence yeah. but I'm like good enough do you know what I mean like if it was transcribed it would just be like dot 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 because right? you know, yes. but yeah good enough I mean thank you so much though that's really sweet of you that was tonight sweet. tonight you have been dot 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 less you've you've done you've oh, done yeah. wonderfully <laughs> thank you. So, so the first question from our live feed comes from Heidi Jean Angle who asks what was the first nugget of inspiration for the story that motivated you to write the book? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Um, it probably started off. Sorry, I have a dog that's. Oh, just we, we love dogs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're dog friendly. Dog friendly. Uh, great. Yeah, it actually started with um, this: the image of actually my mother not picking up the phone because um, in back in two thousand four, wow, I had moved for the powerful. first time 
from Los Angeles, where I grew up, to Seattle to go to graduate school. And this actually happened at the same time that my father, who I was estranged from, passed away in a car accident. And so my father died very suddenly. And so suddenly I was also moving from L.A. to Seattle, and I became haunted with this idea of my mother not picking up the phone. And so in a lot of ways, this was an investigation of thinking about why that was so haunting to me. Um, Part of it is... You know, obviously, we don't want to lose people we love. But another part of it, I think, has to do with the sense of indebtedness that I've always felt towards my mother. The sense that, like, I had to protect her. I had to be there to take care of her. And, like, how dare I, like, leave and try to, like, live my own life. And I'm sure we've all felt different versions of that with different people in our lives. And so Mm. it really began with this image of the phone call and the Mm. mother not picking up the phone. And so the novel is kind of goes into that in depth through a sort of fictional scenario. Mm. What an authentic way to come at a book idea. That's amazing. How, how Mm. interesting. Oh, thank you. I I love this question. Meredith Michael says food is almost its own character in the book. It plays such an important role in bringing people together. When you were writing, how did you view food's role to the story? We may have already kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, food definitely as a form of storytelling, as a way of communicating survival of history, culture, um, Margot gaining a different understanding of her mother through food, realizing that, you know, for Margot, there were these, these meals that she wanted to get away from. But I think now that her mother is gone, you know, I think about this myself too. I think about when my mother passes, you know, where will I learn? Where will I get my recipes from? I'm always, she's there to, she's, I always, I I take her for granted and I assume she's always going to be there to make me certain things or to show me certain things. But, you know, as sort of food as a a way, as a way of keeping knowledge and sort of passing down knowledge. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that kind of just expands on, I mean, I know we've already spoken a lot about food and we're all hungry at this point, but (laughs) (laughs) as a literary device, the one thing caught my attention, one, you know, first of all, let me just say anyone who's tasted Korean food could never call it boring. Let me just start right. there. But you sometimes would say it's a benchon or you would say it's snacks. Yes, you would say snacks. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you would use the name of the food and not tell people what it was. Was How did you decide when and when to do that? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's actually a great question. And um, it's never, that's never been asked to me. So that's, that's really awesome that you actually pointed that out. I, how did I decide? I, you know, when when I was writing this book, you know, it's a third person perspective, but you're still kind of writing within the perspective of the character themselves. And so I was thinking about what Margot and or Mina actually think of the dish as being and so I did use Korean words to sort of describe um, like there's like a sauteed spinach I think and I you know and so I used the Korean you know words to sort of describe that Um, so I felt like it was really important and there's also Spanish language in the book that's not translated I felt Mm -hmm. like it was really important to normalize the words that we actually that the characters actually use and the world of the book Mm-hmm. And to sort of, you know, introduce and to sort of, you know, to sort of help, you know, sort of reinforce the idea that these are ordinary aspects of that character's life. And that's how she thinks of things. 
which is a really, mix of, you know, Korean and English and, you know, some Spanish and yeah. Yeah, I think it added a lot to the book and I'm thank you for answering that. And we're going to have you keep talking because our favorite part of the show is listening to our guest author's writing tip. So uh, Nancy, can you give us a little bit of wisdom? Because I know people like to hear it, including us. Oh, thanks so much for asking. You know, I can use all the tips I can get. So I... <laughs> You know, the um, last weekend I was on a panel and somebody asked me about writer's block and I froze when they asked me about writer's block because I didn't exactly even know what they meant. But for me, I think it's a question that comes up a lot. Like, what exactly does that mean? And like, how do you get through it? For me, the reason why I froze on that question is I don't actually encounter writer's block the way most people do. I think when we think of writer's block, we think of we're looking at a blank screen and we have no idea like what to do. Like, what do I do next? Right. But for me, when every time, every time I, and I take the pressure off of myself, every time I encounter the blank screen and I don't know what to do, I actually pick very small tasks that I can work on. And I find that usually if I am fixated on this plot, plot issue, character issue, these big theme issues, you know, these overarching issues that I'm having that puts a lot of pressure so instead I will pick something that's almost like playing cards with my novel or just being supportive or spending time with my novel like I will say you know what I can't think of a solution to this so I'm going to spend today on punctuation I'm going to spend today I'm going to spend today looking at um, repetition within sentences like I literally will pick tasks that are like small like minutiae like sort of breakdowns yeah, of yeah. manageable Smart. things that allow me to feel productive but aren't don't solve the problem and I find that if I work enough on even those small things I'm subconsciously touching the novel in an mm-hmm. interesting way and I'm yep. creating connections on a level that will eventually reveal itself. And so, and it's usually reveals itself at the most inconvenient time, right? Like when you're not <laughs> right. in front of your computer. Exactly, like, middle like, of the like, night with your yeah. baby. Yeah. Yeah. You're like drinking dogs <laughs> or something, yeah. You're so, finally but, dozing off and yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really important to spend time with the manuscript, but it doesn't have to always have that much pressure. I think that's part of it, you know? It's a great thing. Yeah. I like that. That's really good yeah. advice. That's really good advice. Thank you for that. Um, I'm definitely going to use that tip for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about, oh, I sorry. was just going to say, I, I have done this where I, I write down the question I have about the plot. Ah. And mm-hmm. it, I write it down longhand in a notebook mm-hmm. and I'll say, why does she do that? Oh. Then I might write, I don't know why she does that. Mm-hmm. Well, why could she do that? Mm-hmm. I like that. So you're having like a conversation with yourself on yeah, page. But in, long, in longhand, because I find I'm such a fast typist that if I, if I take the time and let the, the ideas flow through my fingertips, does yeah. that sound too crazy? No. That, no, that right. makes sense. Right. Yes, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, now we're going to talk about Mama Geraldine's. Oh, no, well, now no, we have, we have to get a book crack. Let's do a book crack. Oh, yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> no, you want to do that. <laughs> Mom Geraldine's has a book, has a book uh, suggestion. <laughs> that's, that's really good, and we would love to hear that. <laughs> but Nancy, do you also that's have a book easy. that you've read lately that you would like to share with us? Thanks for asking. You know, I've been reading a lot of children's books lately, as you guys know, baby books, yeah. good, night, good Night Moon. But so I am thinking about books that I read in 2020 instead. And it was a very difficult year for debuts 
and because of the pandemic and everything going on in the world, in the country. And so um, I was thinking about debuts that really stuck with me. And there's this one, it's called The Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornejo Via Vicencio. It's a book of nonfiction and it is a blend of memoir and reporting that I think is really, I love the style of it. It's written with this voice that has its, you know, when you look at the topic of it, you would think that this is going to be heartbroken, but it's heartbreaking, but it's also filled with so much love and joy mm -hmm. and magic. And I just think it's such an important book for Americans to read because it's not only a portrait of a group of people, but it's a portrait of our country and sort of the ways in which, um, you know, undocumented people are sort of embedded in our everyday lives in a very surprising way. So um, I definitely will recommend that. And that is a debut of 2020. That's great. Thank That's you. Beautiful. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Kristen, I think you had a book you wanted to recommend tonight. Yeah. You know, speaking of debuts, I think it's still difficult to be a debut author. I mean, we're still kind of in this weird place where we can't tour, we can't get out there, or, we, you know, we're just on the cusp of being able to do that again. But I wanted to mention the final revival of Opal and Nev, which oh. is a, right? Have, have yeah. you read it, Nancy? I've heard great, no, I've heard great things. Oh. I know, Yeah. So it's by Donnie Walton. I think it, so she's a debut novelist. Um, it mm. comes out, I believe, next Tuesday. Publishers Weekly called it a spectacular debut in a starred mm. review. Uh, oh, New York right. Times bestselling author Kylie Reed calls it lovely and lyrical, a warm and wonderful intersection between journalism and fiction, which I know several of us who are uh, journal we journalists that. in a former life can get behind. Um, and it is just, it's its so, as Nancy said, just so highly uh, touted, highly recommended. It's a great book. It's about a 1970s rock duo their sensational breakup and the dark secrets that are unearthed as they try to reunite uh, for one last tour. So it's very interesting. The final revival of Opal and Nev. Yeah. And we'll be sure to think a little bit of Daisy Jones and the Six. I was thinking that. that. Yeah. 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 I love. Yeah. 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 My favorite of the year. Yeah. Sounds we'll be so sure good. to put the recommendations up on the Facebook page right. for all of you to see. So, Nancy, we'll have a final question for you coming up in just a few minutes, but we have a few announcements first. Everyone, hold tight. No. So we just want to make sure. Oh, first page one. So we have first we want to say thank you. You want to talk about Mama G's? Really so bad. bad. So bad. Are, are they sending you extra cheese straws? Or are you I, know. We don't know about? I really, I really, I really could not say. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Along with Mama G's, we want to thank our partner Page One yes. for um, because it, where else? can you get a curated book but in an independent bookstore and from page one and you get 10% off with fab five don't forget to vote now mama g's <laughs> finally <laughs> um, well we love we love our mama g's and you know it's not just cheese straws they have the key lime cookies and the mini cine, cine minis, one glass of wine. <laughs> um, they have, and the gluten-free for our friend Patty and for Christy. And, you know, um, go to um, mamageraldines.com and put in the Fab Five for your discount. And I don't know if everyone knows, but um, we do have an amazing Friends in Fiction podcast. And in addition to our weekly um, show on Wednesday nights, we also have brand new, fresh, fun interviews. And so this Friday, March 26th, you can find a really great, fun interview that I just did 
with bookstagrammers Stephanie Gray of the Book Lover Book Club and Megan Briggs of um, Megan's Book Club. And it was so fun to get to see sort of the other side of this world. And they offered lots of good advice for people who are wanting to get into the bookstagram world and also advice about how they took their bookstagram platform and transformed it into another business. So it was a really yeah. fascinating talk. Um, I can't wait to hear it. this Friday. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. They were so yeah. fascinating. Oh, it sounds wonderful. I'm excited to hear it. So speaking of things we have coming up next Wednesday, March 31st, we will end the month of March with two leading historical fiction authors and friends, Kate Quinn, whose The Rose Code was an instant New York Times bestseller last week and is on the list again this week, which is wonderful. And Stephanie Dre, who's the women of Chateau Lafayette, which comes out this coming Tuesday, was just a dazzling, spectacular book. I admire both of them so much, and I can't wait to talk to them. I can't wait for you all to hear to hear us talk to them and to ask them your questions, too. So also, as a special bonus next week, the world, the world, you guys, will have its first viewing of the book trailer for our very own Christy Woodson Harvey's Under the Southern Sky, which will be out in less than a month. So I forgot. I'm so excited. excited. I forgot. (laughs) Not that the book was coming out. We did. Abundantly clear that the book is coming out. I forgot about the trailer. (laughs) So don't forget to join us next Wednesday, March 31st, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to have a lot of fun. All right, Now for one final question. And this is a question that it's my favorite that we love to ask a lot of our authors. And I can't wait to hear this because you're a first generation daughter from a bilingual family. So what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up? And do you think they had anything to do with you becoming a writer? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, no one has asked me that question either. This is so, this is fun. Yeah. Yay. Um, you know, it's interesting because my mother, she worked so much. She, I rarely saw her reading. We didn't, I didn't grow up in a house with a ton of books. Um, because yeah, she worked so much um, that, you know, reading was not a part of her life necessarily. But from a very young age, I was very fortunate to grow up within walking distance to a library. And libraries are so important because they are open doors to anybody from any walk of life who wants to walk in and is curious about the world. And so for me, I was the type of kid who you know, I maxed out my library card every single week. I would check out, you know, 10 books a week. I didn't read all 10 books, but just having those books with me and sort of, uh, they were sort of like friends. They sort of accompanied me through my life. And, you know, just um, growing up in a family that was very small and often being feeling very alone, it really sort of encouraged me to sort of you know, fall in love with storytelling, even though it was so absent from my everyday life. And because my mother was working so hard and we spoke different languages also, my mother speaking Korean and me speaking English. And so um, libraries and just being within walking distance to one and just the important role that librarians and booksellers have within our communities, um, making storytelling accessible, creating, mm. uh, allowing us to access worlds where we can see ourselves and sort of dream bigger than our everyday lives. I think that's mm. so important. Yeah. Yeah. I we think love how we went. Love. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, we love how many people always refer to libraries and how important they yeah. are. Yeah. 
I think if we went back and took everybody's answers, I bet 95% have said how important libraries were. Yes. Yes. So I love hearing it again and again and again. Thank you. And I have to say, everybody, this was such a wonderful evening, Nancy. Thank you for your comments. They were enlightening. Uh, and everyone out there, Nancy's thought-provoking book is a must-read, The Last Story of Nina Lee. Oh. And it's available at Pegasus Books and wherever books are sold. And that went fast. That's our show for tonight. Yeah. Yeah. If you've missed episodes, you can catch them on our website at www.friendsandfiction.com, on our YouTube page, and as well as at parade.com, where every week, one of us offers a wonderful essay. And please check out our exciting podcast, too. And so, with that, we'll see you next week. Till then. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Wow. She was amazing. Wasn't she? I mean, I could have... So many questions. So many questions. I just want to talk about mothers and daughters and fathers and everything it was great i think she has such great things to say about um the immigrant experience and i think so many of us are children i mean my father was first generation irish american and my grandmother and my grandfather were came over from ireland um and i can remember trying to talk i was fascinated with ireland yeah as a young kid and i tried to ask my grandmother questions and she said those were hard times i don't want to yeah yeah. Interesting. She yeah. said that. Yeah. 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 She, my grandfather never talked about the war, like ever. He never talked yeah. about it. And, you know, sometimes somebody would ask him something and he would just sort of divert the question. Yeah. It's got to be PTSD at some level. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. she just decided that that was the past. Yeah. That was yeah. a healthy way to get past it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, maybe sort of like um, Nancy's mother, my grandmother um, came over um literally an indentured servant a, uh, a doctor or a judge paid her mm-hmm. her um fare <sighs> on the ship she came over with five dollars and um she'd been orphaned and um you wow. know she worked she worked as a maid and and so she she really did not want to dwell on those wow. times she didn't that want to yeah that, that um, was your grandmother yeah wow My yeah that's wow that's incredible think about how many generations not very many, and what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that a, yeah, that's an incredible thought. It's you know what's, a oh, sorry. of an eye. Yeah. It's like this it, it is, time. It is. And, and yeah. think, think how proud they'd be, though. I mean, of you know, just that, that so many of us, not just the five of us here, but just so many of us have figured out how to make our way. And this is a this is a country that lets us do that. You know, it's, it's well, that it's, is the American dream. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, think about um, my grandmother. I remember she did tell me that when she got to Chicago, where my grand where my grandparents lived and where my dad was and his siblings were born um she said there were signs everywhere uh, in front of um stores yep. that said help wanted irish need not apply yep and yeah. i had, had no idea about that yeah. but, you know, the thing i uh, the thing i think about now is that their immigrant experience was different because when they got here they spoke english that's so true yes yes that it i mean that removes one of the i mean just one of the layers yeah yeah yeah, absolutely you know what those signs said kathy when they said no irish Mm -hmm. it was a bad word they said no patties p-a-d-d-y-s wow yep 
They would put that sign. Pat Patty's yeah. was a negative. Yeah, word. a negative derogatory. Yeah. Or yeah, Bridget. Derogatory. Or that sense of other. It's yeah. always a negative. It's always you're not one of us. It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's based on fear, and that's still happening today. Yeah, and but then it, the first thing that happens, I I, I remember observing from my dad's history and his history lived he grew up in an all irish catholic neighborhood he didn't know anybody who wasn't irish or catholic and um so the first thing they did when they got assimilated a little bit was to discriminate on the next people yeah 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 and and the the cycle just keeps going huh you know my grandmother never spoke english i mean we and i always felt i never knew her and she died you know in her six you know 58 so which is young you know so i didn't know her but she was always smiling and waving (laughs) giving us Um, food but she did only spoke german German, and it was sad so so i never knew her Wow. You, you know, what's interesting. I, I was thinking this as Nancy was talking tonight. It's a thread that kind of runs through my World War II novels also is that there's a lot of silence when you've gone through trauma, right? Like you don't necessarily talk about your stories, but I think you pass down the stories in a way, anyhow, even if the people don't know the stories themselves, you pass down the effects of the things that have happened to you because every everything that happens to you shapes you. And exactly. then those things go into shaping your child. So, um, you know, I, I think we're more a product of our parents than than any of us probably well, really realize. Yeah, well, they're talking memory. about From ancestral that. memory. Yeah. yeah. They're starting 100%. to prove that ancestral memory is something, whether it's trauma from the Holocaust yeah. or war that even if it's not talked about it's built into our dna yeah plus yeah plus we have ancestor.com now yeah yeah <laughs> we yeah. Don't get you in yeah. trouble Speaking of, we had a fascinating podcast interview about yesterday (laughs) we did we interviewed (laughs) jessica strasser whose book is about a girl who who gets a dna test and found that and the sweetie sisters Yeah, there are several books out in this past year um, that have that as sort of a plot device. Um, Danny Shapiro wrote a memoir about it. She found out her dad wasn't her dad. Wow. Well, I told you guys this, that I had someone email me the other day and say that after she had read Pete's Tree Black, she just had always had these like weird feelings about her family. And she like, did some DNA testing and realized that like nothing about her family was what oh, they said it was. Oh, and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And she was like, no, it's, it's good. Like, I'm glad I know, but I was like, Oh, but you know, you do sort of, uh, I think it's interesting that people have those kinds of like inklings. Yeah. Like, like something's hmm. not you, right. you know, I don't look like anybody else in my family. Right. <laughs> yeah. Really- you know, Christy, I think I was just telling you last night in the conversation that we had that mm-hmm. I couldn't put a finger on what drew me to writing about Eastern Poland in yes. the Forest of Vanishing Stars. Yes. And I was about three quarters of the way through writing that book when my brother sent me our Ancestry.com uh, family tree. And it turned out that the actual Harmels from my family, the, the Jewish Harmels in my family, came from the exact same area of Eastern Poland. And, and I had no. never known. Whoa. Yes. Yes, I was three quarters of the way. I mean, there you go. I was absolutely not what led me to writing about, you know, writing that book. And of all the areas I could have chosen, I chose chose the Harmel homelands, which is crazy. (laughs) Which which you could have named it when we when we were looking for a title. Remember when we were all texting? Harmel homeland could have been one of them. (laughs) 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 Yeah, 
that. A Harmel yeah. Homeland. Wait, you guys will all buy it, right? No problem. That won't be a weird title. I like what she said about food as a way of handing yeah. down memories. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd never, I know y'all have probably thought about it that way, but I had never thought about food as kind of an ancestral handing yeah. down of memories and stories, like food as a story. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Do, you remember, do you remember reading um, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn? As oh, sure. Christy does. Christy's <laughs> a little obsessed. Yes. And <laughs> she was so ashamed of, of the of the food that her family ate because it was, you know, she wanted normal American food as I yeah. It's been a real long time. But and I think that's I, I read that in so many other books where it's like they just I want to be assimilated. I want to be American. I don't want this trashy ghetto food that my family always fixed. There is never a day that I don't drink coffee every day, but there is never a day that I don't drink a cup of coffee that I do not think about Katie Nolan, Francie's mother, giving them that one cup of coffee a day that they could pour down the drain and her sister saying that's so wasteful. And she was like, everybody needs something that they can waste. And I never drink a cup of coffee that I don't think about that. Wow. That's cool. That's powerful. Yeah. Wow. And now, well, now I'm hungry. Now I'm starving. I think yes. Yeah. <laughs> so eat. Yeah. I'm, does yeah. anyone else wish the after show lasted oh, until? Oh, <laughs> only if you guys Thank order you takeout to be delivered. Yeah, to we're gonna eat exactly. Exactly. Because you have to remember, out there, we log on early, and so yeah, no, and I we're know, getting angry at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I have been reading all these World War II um, historical fiction novels. You know, I'm knee deep in uh, Lisa Scottolini's new one, Eternal. And then I, I uh, just finished reading um, last week. You know, we had um, Ariel and Jennifer. Ariel and Jennifer, which were World War II set in um, France and um, Italy. Italy and the Ersatz coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where they were, you know, they boiled chicory leaves, not even chicory, acorns and all kinds of nasty stuff. And that's happening. That's happening in Eternal, too. And I'm like, okay, I don't care because I don't drink coffee, but I am such a coffee snob that no, thank you. (laughs) That just makes me shiver. Wait, wait until you read about the coffee they made in the middle of the forest in the forest of vanishing. I was oh, just oh, going to oh. say that. You took the words out of my mouth. Oh, wait till oh, you I, read about the Harmel Homeland coffee. Oh, no, talk about <laughs> mystery murders. Guys, I have a great mystery plot for one of you who likes to write mysteries. When I was on St. Phillips, we, we learned that the, the Southern Yopan has is the only plant, shrub, in the United States that has caffeine in it. But it's 10 times stronger than normal like a caffeine wow. from a bean. So, hmm, have a cup of tea, dear. Southern <laughs> it'll, it'll help your problem. <laughs> but it's interesting that, you know, the, the fact that uh, um, in so many of these books, it's sort of the, um, the, the symbol of deprivation. The one, yeah. Thing, yeah. the one thing that they crave so much that they yeah. can't, they can't have and that they trade. Yeah. You know, when yeah. the first thing, the first thing that, you know, that's the first luxury that comes to mind, that and chocolate. Yeah. At 6 a.m., I'd trade a lot of things for a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things. Well, right now I'm starving. I'm going to go get some dinner. All right. So good night, Bye, everybody. everyone. Thank night, you. Everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube. 
where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.